You're Missing Out is sponsored by Audible. As part of my New Year's resolution, I told myself I'd read more and listen to new audiobooks. With Audible, it's easier than ever to find titles and time in my routine to reach my goal. Every month, members get one credit to pick any title, plus two Audible originals from a monthly selection, as well as access to daily news digests from the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and the Washington Post. Right now, you can visit audibletrial.com slash ymopodcast and get two audiobooks on behalf of the show. You can download thousands of different titles and listen offline, anytime, anywhere. Download the free Audible app on your favorite smartphone and tablet devices without ever losing your spot. Having a hard time deciding what to listen to? No worries. You can keep your credits for up to a year and use them to binge on a whole series if you'd like. This is the best way to find a new title to fall in love with, all while supporting your favorite National Film Registry podcast. Once again, that's audibletrial.com slash ymopodcast to start your free trial and get two free audiobooks on us. Thank you for your support. And now, on with the show. Okay, gentlemen. I want to know what you think a Best Picture winner that you think people are too rough on. Um, I, I, I'll say it's not really recent anymore. Fucking, it's almost 15 years old at this point, but mainly because a good friend of ours gives it way too much shit, and I feel like I have to defend it all the time. <laughs> uh, I think that the part it gets way too much shit for being, winning Best Picture. No, it is not one of Scorsese's best, but it is Scorsese's best of that decade. Come at me, I don't care. It's it's very entertaining. It's very well written. I like it a lot. I think it's great. And I mean, what the like? What what did you want to win that year? Like, I'm sorry, but get over it. The Departed rips. It roars, and some might even say it's a hoot and a holler. I think it's so interesting, Tom, that that you say that. Um, you know, what did what did you want to win? Because that's sort of something I've been considering. People tend to dunk on certain Best Picture winners solely because or largely because of what it beat out. You know, uh, something like Shakespeare in Love gets a lot of flack. And I wonder, would it get as much flack if it weren't the movie that beat uh, Saving Private Ryan? Right. Or Chicago. I remember in college, it was very hip to, to really dunk on Chicago winning Best Picture because it beat out Gangs of New York, which is not even uh, particularly a strong one to ride for, right? It dances with wolves, beating Goodfellas, things like that. But the one I think people are really too hard on for a very weird reason, and I've said this before, is the artist. Because most of the people I know who really come down on the artist haven't seen it. I would venture to guess it's one of the least seen, if not the least seen, recent Best Picture winner. It's a it's a good it's a really good well-made film that's doing something really interesting but people just got it in their heads that oh the standard things you always hear oh the Oscars like rewarding movies about movies they like patting themselves on the back and that's why it won the thing that strikes me about it is that this isn't even a year that has a particular favorite you know the artist here like okay if we're really going to dunk on the artist like what what were we in favor of the descendants extremely loud and incredibly close like the only two films out of those best picture nominees that people still talk about are the tree of life which is divisive at best and moneyball which i think is a good movie it's a serviceable movie. it's a great film i enjoy watching it when it's on but it's like this is not a situation of crash beating brokeback mountain you know or anything like that i, I think people should watch it the artist is very good it's really interesting, and I, it's just this weird case of, I think, that the, the most vocal opponents of that movie winning Best Picture 
have not seen it and just know what they have decided it is. So I think the artist gets a real bad rap. Every year since 1989, the Library of Congress has selected 25 films to add to the National Film Registry. The criteria? The films must be culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. Each week on You're Missing Out, we take a look at one of these films to try and get to the heart of why they were selected and why they still matter. This week, Patrick Kotner from the George Lucas Talk Show returns to the show to discuss How Green Was My Valley and Star Wars Jedi Power Battles. You know our guest is the producer and co-host of the George Lucas Talk Show, the producer of Rat Scraps, and from being a very cute boy, Patrick Cotner joins us on the show again. Patrick, thank you. Yeah, you did it. You said it exactly like I wanted you to. That's great. How are you guys? We're doing great. Welcome back to the mayhem. Thank you. We're very excited to have you back uh, for a couple of reasons. One, I should tell you, and I, I have not told you this before, uh, you are our, if you don't count like bonus episodes, you mm-hmm. have the, uh, second highest rated episode in our entire, uh, Whoa. it's a, it's That's a rad. huge hit. Yeah. Yeah. Can I, can I ask who number one was? Of course it's, uh, it's David Sims talking about the crowd. Of course. Of course it is. All right. I mean, I can't compete. I can't compete. I'm from the U S I get it. Can I tell you, you've come very close <laughs> at times. It oh, wow, okay. back and forth. <laughs> um, the, the funnier thing about that is cause a friend of ours, uh, Phil Iskov, you know, has talked to us about like, well, you want to on their show, you know, well, when we pick the films that obviously are, are more seen, those do better. And what's weird for us is our second best episode is the one that pretty much everyone has seen star Wars. And our first yes. uh, highest rated episode is the crowd, a movie that you cannot legally watch anywhere and haven't been yeah. able to for decades. I don't even know what it is. So it's, it's a King Vidor movie. Oh, sure. uh, okay. it's an incredible movie i highly recommend it um you know but there's no legal way to watch it so i might have to send you a link to a google drive i don't know it's so crazy that i'm easy. sorry i'm sorry to get right into this like yeah. this but it's so crazy that movies like that aren't just available places because like who is it costing money to like not have it streaming so you know like it's yeah. not going to cost them an arm and a leg to like put it up on criterion or put it up in freaking hulu or something you know like why why keep that why keep that away from people crazier it's warner brothers they could just pop it on hbo max so weird it's It's, so so weird yeah um but we're also excited to have you back because you are the only person to pick their season two movie (laughs) uh before season one was over um we may have the original audio we may not maybe we'll play that here maybe we won't but the mm-hmm. way that this happened, I re-listened to it uh, today, was um, that we you were last on our show to talk about Star Wars. Yeah. Uh, the 1977 motion picture. Yeah. That uh, you, you know fairly well. You, you currently co-host a uh, talk show that partially impersonates the director of Star Wars. So, um, you know. Sure. Uh, and then you ended by saying, guys, we didn't even get a chance to talk about Jedi Power Battles. So that I know I kind of, when I first pitched it to you, I pitched it to you in the spur of the moment, uh, off right when we finished our panel. No, I love it. I love it. I'm so curious. Thank you. Well, and, and we didn't even get, to, uh, we didn't even get to talk about the PlayStation one game, Jedi power battles. <laughs> oh. Or, or, uh, excuse me, or masters of Terracossi. Or masters uh, of Terracossi. So many things. I mean, they just, we released a remastered version of Pod Racer. Now, That's Tom, true. I want to, 
I just want to jump on what you just said, which is, hey, next year, come on to talk about Jedi Power Battles. And that makes me want to believe that next year we can have Patrick on for, like, one of the other, like, for How Green Was My Valley, and half of it will still be Jedi Power Battles talk. I would, I would truly love to do that so much. Oh, no. Like, you guys go back for Green Bay Valley talk about that, and you went, I would love to come. <laughs> I will do it. I've never seen it. But I will oh. come back to talk about how green is my valley on the condition that it is 50-50, mm-hmm. how green is my valley, mm-hmm. and Jedi power battles. Um, and, and I want to say, you know, before recording, I'm not here to blow up anyone's spot. You did say you're not sure if we'll be able to do 50% on Jedi power battles, and I'm here to hold your feet to the dang fire. Well, I say that because now everyone on mic has, in fact, played the PlayStation yeah. 1 game Jedi power battles. And uh, spoilers for the second half of this episode, <laughs> I am not terribly good at it. Sure. sure so sure, when sure. I say I couldn't do 50%, that might be because uh, through all six lives of all five Jedi options, <laughs> I did not get past level one <laughs> at all. Well, that's I lo- well, save it. Save it. We'll talk about it in a little bit. That's amazing. We will. But you are first here to talk about how green was my valley. Um, yeah. Now, this was a film that uh, you had not seen before, correct? No, no, I'd never seen it. I had heard of it, uh, you know, just from uh, the Academy Awards and everything, but I had never seen it. I knew nothing about it um, so, until today. So what I'm excited about with this episode, when you look at the National Film Registry and the films that are picked in season one, uh, with the exception of The Crowd, which was uh, <laughs> which is hard to find, but the other all of those are, are to some degree canonical classics, right? And today we're talking about a John Ford film. In season one, we had two John Ford films, The Searchers and Grapes of Wrath. Now those are both still held up as classic John Ford movies. The interesting thing about How Green Was My Valley is that I would go so far, and, and you said you'd heard about it, I would go so far as to suggest, and, and feel free to disagree, that, that its reputation today is primarily it's the movie that beat Citizen Kane. Right? Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, that's the only reason. I I knew that it won Best Picture, and that was truly all I knew about it. My roommate actually, I came out into our living room a couple months ago, maybe like four or five months ago, and he was watching the movie on his own. Mm-hmm. And I went, oh no, I need to go back in my room. I cannot watch this now. I need to watch this in a couple months. <laughs> <laughs> so I just went and... Locked myself back in my bedroom and uh, had to come out back out two hours later when he was done. I I mean, that's the level of commitment to this program that I really yeah. appreciate. Uh, yeah. <laughs> well, here's the reason. I knew I wasn't going to want to watch it twice, you know? <laughs> well, that's <laughs> fair enough. That's the interesting thing. So it is a movie that not only do most people know it as just the movie that beats Citizen Kane and how egregious that is, which is the kind of thing that, mm-hmm. like... I think ordinary people carries that reputation because of beating Raging Bull. There are certain movies, uh, Crash, like there are certain movies that have this albatross around their Mm -hmm. neck, not even about the film itself, but just like this beat blank. Um, And I think that uh, I can speak to Tom, uh, not to my experience, and, and Tom can speak to himself, but the first time I watched How Green Is My Valley was in early 2020, um, back when we thought lockdown was lasting two weeks. And I thought, well, I've got this mm-hmm. time off. Why don't I watch all the best picture winners I've ever seen? And I watched it and kind of just shrugged it off, uh, saying, eh, it's kind of, meh. 
And Tom, I mean, your first time watching it was what a couple months ago, right? Uh, yeah, I've watched it uh, last summer because uh, we had a little uh, false start in terms of recording this season. I thought I was going to get a jump on it, and I did just a much bigger jump uh, <laughs> than I thought I was getting. So the interesting <laughs> thing about it is when it pops up in the registry, you know, you have this feeling of, oh, that's that's uh, that got in second. Um, but mm-hmm. what I think is interesting is that Tom and I both rewatched it uh, in the lead up to the show, and I've watched you know a second time uh, after that. And what I think is interesting about this movie is it's a movie that feels very dull and samey and Oscar baby and whatever if you are watching it as the movie that beats Citizen Kane. Sure. What I, I hope we can get to through this episode is that there is actually a lot about this movie that is really engaging and emotional and, and worthwhile and worthy of its selection if you watch it divorced of that. If you watch it as How Green Was My Valley. And so I've now seen it three times. Tom's seen it two. You've seen it one. I think it's going to be a lot of fun for us to kind of go through this. And, you know, we always say the point of the show is to to help people figure out why this film matters. I think we all get to kind of go through this and ourselves figure out why this film matters so i think it's going to be a lot of fun uh to kick this off let's talk about why the registry said they selected it they said a seamless collaboration of creative talent both credited and uncredited lies behind the success of 1941's best picture winner how green was my valley much of the dialogue arises directly from richard llewellyn's novel of a welsh mining community while Philip Dunn's screenplay gives the film its episodic structure and reflective narrative voice. William Wyler served as director through pre-production and supervised location scouting and set construction, as well as the crucial casting of Roddy McDowell in the lead role. John Ford took the Dunn screenplay and Wyler sets and staged scenes in his own style. Finally, Fox mogul Daryl Zanuck took all of Ford's footage and supervised the final edit, as he did on many of the projects he oversaw, both at Warner Brothers and Fox. Not actually particularly reflective of why they selected it. So let's talk about How Green's My Valley and its its place in film history. And I would say let's yeah, there's certainly obvious comparisons uh, to Kane, but I, I think our goal today would be let's talk about this movie as How Green Was My Valley, as opposed to in relation to to Kane, though uh, obviously, if it's an opportunity for Tom to talk about Orson Welles, he's going to talk about Orson Welles. This is going to happen, so everybody make peace with it now. Uh, yeah, deal with it, guys. Uh, <laughs> sorry. So I have to ask before we get into you know all this stuff that Nolan Tom did, Patrick, what was your first impression of this film? Seeing it for the first time, what what surprised you about it? Considering what you did or didn't know about it, what what struck you about it? Yeah, I mean, I literally, I knew nothing about it. The thing uh, that first got me was that Maureen O'Hara's in it. And I met Maureen O'Hara when I was a kid. Really? Um, (laughs) Yeah, yeah. She came, uh, she came to the, God, I don't know, even know what it's called, the New England, like, aviation museum or something like that. It's in Connecticut. And it's like a, a museum of old airplanes, like the guy who dropped the atomic bomb, the pilot from that plane used to come there. I have no idea why she came there. I think she had a book out maybe, but I was probably maybe eight or nine years old. And it was, 
it was my dad and it was me and it was like 200 horny 80 year old men who were like maureen o'hare was the hottie back in my day you know like it was like a lot of that um and i don't think i had seen any more no i see what's the woman that she's in with john wayne um the big quiet man yeah yeah i'd seen the quiet man um around that time and obviously like you know you're an eight or nine year old no excuse me no wait it was not the quiet man it was mcclintock we watched mcclintock oh wow yeah we watched mcclintock (laughs) which i i don't really remember um i just remember watching it that's very funny i'm looking at a wikipedia page now that's what i thought of but yeah so uh this was the first maureen o'hara movie i'd seen in a very long time um so that was surprising to me i was very happy to see it I remember her being a very nice uh, old woman in her mid-80s, I think, at the time. Um, But that was about it. Um, When I was watching it, there were some shots in it that I was like, oh, if this shot was in, like, an A24 movie right now, people would be like, oh, my gosh, this is the best cinematography I've seen in my life. Like, there were shots that reminded me of The Lighthouse Mm -hmm. in it. Yeah. It was just, like, framing of the guys outside, like, standing on the hill looking up at the, you know, everything going on up there. And uh, th- I think that was what struck me the most was that I just liked how it was shot. I liked the set that t- like the town was very cool. Um, uh, yeah, no, I-, I enjoyed it. And, and you know, very young Roddy McDowell was fun, too. I was talking to my roommate. I was like, oh, I remember when he died. And it was like, yeah, he's like 70 years old when he died. And he died in 1998, which just shows how old this movie is. Yeah. And he was I mean, he's. Uh... I, he's one of the things, he was such a find, uh, we'll get mm-hmm. into the trivia later, but he was such a find for, for Weiler and, and Zanuck and all that, that originally the film was supposed to be half the child version mm-hmm. of How and half an adult version. Sure. And once they found Roddy McDowell, they thought he was so compelling and they felt he could really play How aging huh. upward that they cut the adult part down to just a voiceover. Mm-hmm. Because they basically felt like you need this kid on screen. Interesting. Now, was the guy who did the voiceover? Do you know was he supposed to do it uh, on screen too? I don't. I I don't think they went that far. Sure. Um. Yeah. I think it. I mean, I didn't hear anything about that. Uh, one way or the other. But, but yes, that that was the thing. Now, I want to drop a quick, uh, bit of amazing trivia on y'all. I've been holding on to this one for a while. Do either of you know anything about the book? And its author, Richard Llewellyn. No. No. Okay, so this book was a massive hit, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and Richard Llewellyn uh, was obviously celebrated for it. I mean, this book was, to give you an idea of how big a hit this was, uh, and you can kind of feel it when you're watching it a bit, Daryl Zanuck originally envisioned this, envisioned this as a four-hour color epic. Mm-hmm. Uh, his version, Fox's version of Gone with the Wind. Hmm. Which you can kind of see as you watch it. Um, and when Will and William Wyler was brought on, that was the idea. was William Wyler can do this big epic. Uh, and this was based... Uh, Richard Llewellyn uh, told the story of how this was based on... Uh, it all was based on his life. Mm-hmm. Um, that he was born in small-town Wales. Uh, he His family was so poor, uh, he wasn't even... He had no birth certificate. <laughs> Uh, and that he was only at the only record of his birth was in like a family diary that was lost in a fire oh after all the mines shut down. Um, but this was like profound to people. Like, th- think about what this, you know, 
what this young boy goes through in this book and sure. people were just so moved that like Richard Llewellyn, this was his life, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, losing his father in the mines, losing his oldest brother, um, all of that. What's interesting is that later we found out uh, none of that's true. <laughs> right. He was, that coming. he was born in England, <sighs> uh, did not actually spend any time in Wales until oh. after the book. Oh, no. Uh, he was of Welsh descent. But he just took stories from the lives of people he had worked with who had told him these stories. Um, so all of it is lies. I mean, l- um, listen, yeah, if I'm writing a book in the 30s or whenever this book came out, sure, you say whatever you want. Like, there's no way anyone's going to be able to find that for a very long time. And I'm looking now, he died in the 80s. So it's like, yeah, sure, that makes more sense that they would be able to like look that kind of thing up then. But in the 30s, yeah, say whatever you want, man. That's that's my take. The two things to me that strike me as funny is I was reading up, and so apparently people in Wales read the book and were like, what the fuck is this? <laughs> that's not, this doesn't uh-huh. feel right. But then it became such a hit. And then the movie be, was so a romanticized version of Wales. And let's face it, the Welsh don't get a lot. Yeah. Um, you know, we don't really depict it a lot. That they just kind of rolled with it. And now they're like, hell yeah, sure. We're, we're all in on this. Sure. Um. Also interesting because this film was eventually directed by John Ford. Uh, John Ford, who always claimed that he was born Sean Aloysius Ophirna hmm. on February 1st, 1895. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then the registry of births for Cape Elizabeth, Maine, records the birth of John Martin Feeney on February 1st, oh 1894. Oh he lied gosh. about the year and he lied about the name. So it's a marriage of of uh, fabulists. Wow. Um, yeah, yeah. But I thought that was. I've been sitting on this one for a bit. That just <laughs> that this was such a hit because of its authenticity. Yeah. Because of its you know sincerity. And then nope, just nope. So wild. Great. Not even close. I love it. It it was the million little pieces of its day. Yes. Like it's truly insane. Is that the old, like um, I'm trying to think of other times that that has happened? Is that like where something has been discredited? Yeah, well, just like totally discredited. I feel like there have been other times, but I think it's one of those things where most of those times those kind of sensations get a little strangled early because people are doing that level of research. Sure. The thing that made Million Little Pieces so jarring was the fact that it was Oprah's book club and everything. Like it, it skyrocketed so quickly before it got, uh, before it got exposed. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so Wyler was originally supposed to do this. It was supposed to be, uh, not only was it supposed to be four hours and Technicolor, but they wanted to film it in Wales. Mm. They wanted to actually go and film it in Wales. And then World War II happened. So they couldn't go film it in Wales. Sure. And the studio started to panic because William Wyler was known for going over budget and for being kind of difficult and not playing the game. So they got rid of Weiler and they brought in John Ford because John Ford is known for being efficient, mm-hmm. almost cold in a way, <laughs> and just doing what he's got to get done. Uh, it was Ford's decision to recreate Wales in Malibu, California. <laughs> and and what I think is so incredible about that is that if you looked at this mining town and I told you, yes, this was filmed in Wales, I don't think anybody would question it. Yeah. It certainly does not look like the Santa Monica Mount, but they built, no, they built an 80-acre replica. I, I think it kind of just goes to your point that the Welsh don't really get much, so we don't have a frame of reference <laughs> it's true. here, other than this complete fugazi that is how green is my valley. <laughs> 
yeah, so Ford put it together. But it's an amazing thing about this, I think. And I don't know, Patrick, are you uh, are you a big John Ford fan? Are you familiar with his work? I've seen a couple. I saw The Searchers. It was one of the last things I saw uh, right before um, lockdown in 2020. I was in L.A., and this weirdly uh, coincides with <laughs> the other half of this podcast. I was there, and they were – Matt Martin, who's one of the Lucasfilm Story Group guys – was doing a series of film screenings at the Alamo in LA of movies that inspired George Lucas. And I just happened to be there when they were showing the searchers because there's a lot of uh, like attack of the clones when Anakin's looking for his mother and stuff that like is very similar to the searchers. That might be the only one I've seen of his. I'm looking through the list right now to see if there's anything else, but that's, that's the big one. I'm not a huge well, Western guy. I, the thing that makes this interesting in, in a way is yeah. that, um, you know, and I, Tom is obviously uh, has been deep down a John Ford rabbit hole uh, in prep for this. Um, so I'm sure Tom oh, will speak yeah. with this too. The thing that's so interesting, and it, it's it's a weird thing we deal with sometimes when we talk about the auteur theory, mm-hmm. right? I mean, I don't know, I don't know where you stand on the the entire idea of the auteur theory, Patrick. How do you, you know, do you do you buy into that fully? Do you have some reservations? I think uh, there are definitely people who can fall into that category. I think it gets thrown around a little loosely sometimes. Uh, and I think uh, maybe, you know, like someone, you know, a John Ford or a uh, Hitchcock or someone like that. We're like, yeah, of course, even even like a, um, uh, like a Kurosawa or something, you know, someone uh, of that ilk. Uh, I definitely see it, but I feel like that auteur, I feel like it's thrown around by a lot of people who don't necessarily know what it means at this point. Mm-hmm. It's, it's the, the reason I bring that up is that this movie, this very film can either be uh confirmation or refutation of the auteur theory, depending mm. on how you look at it. Cause the weird thing about it is, you know, when we talk about auteurs, you know, we, we have this vision. It's not how it was originally intended. But now the idea is like somebody who does everything, mm. right? Mm-hmm. That they're involved in every step of the process. In which case, this is definitely not that because when John Ford took this on, the screenplay was already written. Sure, uh, sure. And William Wyler had already cast it and staged it. And Zanuck was very much in control and did the edits. Ford was seemingly not that involved uh, in much beyond the actual act of directing on this film. And yet, the thing that's so interesting about that is this. Uh, the thing that's so interesting about this is that it still feels like a John Ford movie. Mm-hmm. You know, it, so much so that you're noticing trademarks uh, of his of his not just visual style, but even his storytelling style. You know, and and elements of his actual life. I mean, uh, the whole bit about um, how uh, being bedridden, right, as a mm-hmm. child. And having to learn through books, that actually happened to Ford. Hmm. Ford uh, had a childhood bout of diphtheria and lost a year of school and and learned to become more introspective and embraced books. And I think that something that's so interesting is, is that wasn't obviously Ford's, it's not Ford's book, it's not Ford's script, it's not Ford's cast, and yet something as simple as Roddy McDowell starting out with one book and then you just showing the shelf of books. Sure the past your time that you know that's something of ford's voice even though i mean again i'll throw to you tom because you you're much more in, into ford and the totality of his work but you, you see what i'm saying about it being kind of feeling like a ford film despite him not being well yeah 
I get. I mean, it's it goes. It's it's the auteur thing, you know, about how people simplify it so much when really it it's a lot more complicated than that. Because yeah, none of this was started by Ford. He he was a work for hire basically, but his view of things and the things that he was interested in was so consistent throughout his career that he could easily see a story like this and be like, Oh yeah, this is a story I want to do. Obviously Mm -hmm. there's a lot of things that I connect to. I'm sure he uh, focuses on other things, highlights other things. I mean, cause I, I talk about this with Mike all the time. He's a rowdy filmmaker. Mm-hmm. He's got that rowdy drunken Irish, like, Oh, it's just boys being boys. We're going to have like, you know, he's a guy who likes making movies where dudes rock. Sure. It's like his sure. like main thing. Mm-hmm. Dudes rock. So like, you know, there's a, like a whole chunk of the movie. That's just about, you know, Hugh, learning how to box and then his boxing teachers beating up his teacher at school because well dudes rock (laughs) and you know there's a lot of oh yeah we're celebrating and drinking and partying and having fun and all of that and then uh you know the more you watch his stuff uh you see uh his interests in um social issues and and all of that um I know it's easy for people these days to kind of nail him as a like right-wing guy or whatever or you know uh, not particularly great when it comes to Native American stuff in cinema, which, you know, that's a whole other discussion since that's not this movie. But, um, you know, the year before, I think a companion piece he made, Grapes of Wrath. And that's another movie about, you know, the working class being absolutely put upon and destroyed by the horrible nature of capitalism and lack of unions and lack of workers rights and all of that stuff and that's just kind of a thing he he was chasing for a while and again as a, he's an auteur but he, he you know he, he this was a work for hire and he didn't even edit the goddamn movie <laughs> and he was off you know he made three movies this year that you know this movie came out uh so what were the other two uh, hold on let me let me bring it up Oh, I'm sorry. I don't mean to make you dig for that. I just thought you had that on. No, okay. no, it's not digging. It's not like I have a tiny little computer in my pocket that <laughs> I'm not using to record on this big computer. Oh, excuse me, two in 41. Uh, Tobacco Road was his second movie in 1941. And then he goes to war. So, you know. Yeah, that's true. It's interesting, Tom, you mentioned about the, the labor element of this. This is one of those things where I feel like, and I, I don't know, you know, Patrick, you went in not knowing anything mm-hmm. about the film. The first time I watched it, what I had read was a synopsis that said, this is about a Welsh mining strike yeah. and and labor relations. To me, when I watched it with that sentence in mind, it, it was weird. The movie was confounding because I was like, it's not really about that at all. Like yeah. that, that, that's a, a, a plot point. But I also have to imagine if you don't know anything about this, looking at a film from the early 40s, you know, to hear that talk of not just talk of unions, but to have a, a preacher come out and be pro uh, labor in a film, I would imagine that's also kind of surprising uh, and that you don't expect from a film of that time. Yeah, it, it definitely is. You know, uh, that's the backdrop. Uh, I'm, I feel like a lot of movies get described that way where they'll be like, I'm trying to think of an example where they will say something like, oh, this is a movie about a mining town. It's like, yeah, OK, but that's just in the background, really. And it, it is part of the movie, but it's not very... Uh, uh, prevalent throughout the whole thing. It's more about, you know, the family and the kid and everybody. And the strike's over in like 10 minutes. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think it's interesting because, you know, the first time I watched it, I felt, 
this isn't really about the strike. Mm-hmm. And then watching it again the second time, it struck me that it is in the same way that To Kill a Mockingbird is about the trial. Sure. Yes, that's both a great example. Works, yeah, both works are through the eyes of a child. And in this time watching it, I was really struck by that because the thing that I found so compelling is this movie is about a labor strike and it's all, it's neither pro or anti-union because mm. what it's actually about is the social hardening that comes with the dispute in the same way that like Spike Lee often talks about how he he hates when people come up to him and ask did Mookie do the right thing mm-hmm. or asks him you know who started it and do the right thing sure. because it's not about that it doesn't matter whether you think Sal should have had, quote, black people on the wall or Buggin' Out shouldn't have started a fight. It's about how something happened and the community can't be – you can't go back to how it was before. There's a point in this when, you know, there's the line, uh, you know, when the kid asks where it means, it, it means something has gone out of the valley that cannot be replaced. It doesn't matter – in Howe's eyes, it's not, you know, he never sees, Howe never sees the people working in the mines, or, or the people who own the mines. Mm-hmm. The only time you see the mine owner is when he comes to try and uh, get his son married off to the daughter. And Howe doesn't understand what the actual conditions are in the mine besides there's less money. Uh, all he knows is that his brothers were pro-union. His father, who had been the spokesman, is not in favor of the union. And because his father is not in favor of the union, not actively against it even, not mm-hmm. protesting it, but just is not in favor, people start hanging around the house and glaring at him. And it gets so bad that his mother has to intervene and and say to them, you know, if you in a, in a very... I can't speak for the Welsh, but Ford is Irish in a very Irish way, <laughs> uh, saying, you know... Uh, any of you uh, bother my husband, I'll come and, and, and strike you with my own bare hands. You know, it's I thought that was very interesting because it seems like the message of the film is later explicitly stated. You know, I mean, there's the line, you know, they knew my father had opposed the strike. Now it was them that opposed him. It, it's a condemnation of of mob mentality rather than a condemnation of unionizing or a condemnation of of naked capitalism in the way that for its previous film grapes of wrath obviously because of the source material takes a very hard stance this feels a little more like it's saying whether you want to blame it on the unions or whether you want to blame it on the mine owners at some point somebody did something and my community was destroyed i don't necessarily know if that's i think it's not so much mob mentality and it is actually a like grace of wrath a stirring indictment of capitalism and how you know these like a mining company like this can prop crop up in town and basically become the only source of income for town and based based on you know being the only thing giving these people lives it can like twist the way they think and make them think that the mine is important and uh, you know, each other isn't, and that, um, you know, like, you get this, like, the father, 
basically kicks his sons out of the house because he goes, oh, well, you're talking about socialism there. You know, I mean, not yeah. like that's relevant these days, <laughs> but um, because people, you know, in this town have been so completely brainwashed that, um, you know, the company's good. Making money for the company is good. The company will be nice to us if we just let them, you know, pay us less and it'll eventually work out for us. And then it doesn't. I mean, even to the point that the daughter is married off to the mine owner's son and her brothers still get fucking laid off. Uh, it, it's because uh, it, it's just it's it's so much about everything in this town becomes the mine gets too much power. It'll just it doesn't care about the people, but the people have been so convinced that, well, you know, mine's good we got to be nice to the mine and anybody trying to you know you know make things right which like the sun says this isn't about socialism this is about what's right and it's i think it's much more about how capitalism turns us against each other and and listen i know tempers are high right now we're getting a little worked up about this movie but i think there's one thing that we can all agree on and that's <laughs> none of us should ever try to work in a mine because it seems awful and it seems terrible. And every time I see something set in a mine, I'm like, I would never survive this. I would be one of the first people <laughs> to die. And that's exactly what I thought while I was watching this movie today. I was like, yeah, this is bad. This is bad. Yeah, not not and, great. You just get painted with black dust that might not be able to rub off your skin yeah, for the rest of your life. Yeah. The only reason I say that is there is that line later, which I think is ins I mean, insanely radical for its time, that you have a clergyman uh, take a stance on labor relations mm. uh, and to explicitly have him say, you have that moment where um, where Walter Pidgeon says, like, you know what, I'll say it. I'm pro-union. Like, I, I, I think that it's supporting your neighbors. It's about doing all this. And he, you know, is essentially connecting uh the labor struggle to christianity but he does also say that line but remember with strength comes responsibility you cannot combat injustice with more injustice only justice you know and that's what i mean is i think that there was this this idea from ford in this film uh and in this text that is the idea of do not uh to you know just this idea especially from the perspective of the young boy of like okay, all I'm hearing is these people saying they're doing what's right for the community, these people saying they're doing what's right for the community, and ultimately it's gone. You know, that his understanding, even though, I mean, think about the fact that this character was supposed to go off and get a higher education, How, and what does he end up doing? He goes to work in the mines like his father, you know? And even then, even after going and working in the mines, he still has to leave the valley. Yeah, because... All right, so here's the thing. I didn't. I don't think they actually made a union. I just thought they went on strike because they keep getting fired. That's not a union. <laughs> they just went on strike. I think a part of it is that some people wanted to go start a union. The father didn't, and it caused this, again, this political divi uh, division throughout the town that starts from the, from the top with the corporation making people have to choose sides. Do you guys want to be treated right with equal pay because then we're not going to make enough money and we might not be able to pay you. Or do you guys want to just, you know, make things easier for us while you guys go digging for, for dirty clumps of shit in the, in the earth for, you know, one shilling an hour or a shilling a day, whatever the hell the, the, the pay was like, I, maybe I'm wrong. 
I don't know. I've seen the movie twice. I don't think they actually started a union. I think that's why even because the Walter Pigeon saying that is after the strike, I think. Right. I mean, yeah, I don't think they started the a union. Yes. Yeah, they don't start. A union. It's still it's still in discussion at that point. It hasn't actually begun. That's the thing. It's it's yeah because there's there's never a moment like you're talking about with responsibility and everything. There's never a moment of like, you know, this isn't uh, the Irishman where you're seeing like the unions being used wrong, mm-hmm. being uh, achieved in the wrong way, or criminalities taking part. Now you know Jimmy Hoffer's not running around calling people dumb motherfuckers. Although that sounds like a great movie if he was. <laughs> I mean, listen, I'd watch it. I'm just saying. Remake uh-huh. of How Green Is My Valley, Al Pacino running around doing whatever accent that was in The Irishman. I um, heard you paint valleys. Is that what it could be? <laughs> I heard you paint valleys. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I don't, I think, so that's why I, think, I don't, I, I, I don't think it actually gets into any of that stuff because they don't even get to that point because they've been so divided on the politics of even like basic human rights for workers that you know, a father who seems to be a good guy and gets, you know, a lot of the attention from the other workers at the mine is just like, well, no, that's socialism. That's bad. Well, where does he get that shit from? We clearly see later he's not like a book smart man. He's learning math and and all that and proper English while his son is doing it, giving his mm-hmm. wife shit for not wanting to learn. So uh, 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 I don't know. Maybe I'm just saying I don't think that's where the movie's coming from. If only because, uh, like, again, with the auteur thing, it's kind of flip-floppy with Ford, since this is a work for thing. I think with Grapes of Wrath, I think he very comes down clearly. And having Walter Pigeon say it means he's very clearly saying, you guys need to start a union, stop fighting with each other, mm-hmm. and make sure these assholes don't, you know, marry your daughter, run off to the, the South Africa, <laughs> and then fire <laughs> everybody. Because people from other valleys around Wales will work for less. I don't. I don't disagree with that. I think it's rather the case that, you know, again, I, I go back to that line that Pigeon has, where he says, you know, remember, you can't fight injustice with more injustice, you know, and and remember, you know, that with strength comes responsibility. Because the other factor that we're not, we haven't touched on yet, uh, that also makes this film, I think, pretty bold, is the fact that it's also a condemnation of. Uh, the clergy and the and the church community within the town, yeah. because you have that moment where the elder priest, um, you know, the, the senior clergyman uh, calls up uh, the woman who was having a child out of wedlock and excoriates her in front of uh, in front of the town, uh, and only Maureen O'Hara stands up to him, uh, and then that woman is is chased out of town. Uh, and that, of course, comes back around when they start attacking Walter Pigeon for the rumor that uh, Maureen O'Hara is going to leave her husband for him, which is not even the case, but just the rumor and the conjecture of it. And I look at that and I felt, looking at it, that they were trying to draw some kind of parallel between that emphasis, because the scene, the film does emphasize that way of because my father opposed the union, the town turned on him. And mm-hmm. later that, you know, here is uh, Griffith, this this preacher who is, is educated and kind and helps how to walk again. Like, he's just wonderful. There's nothing wrong with this man. He's great. 
and the church turns on him and you have even the father makes that statement that i thought is pretty wild for a movie in 41 where he basically says you know are you going to church and he goes i'm not and if they do what they're going to do i'm never going again you know yeah. um i mean ford i think that and especially something with like having it be this this christian church and of course you know ford was you know a religious person irish deeply religious deeply catholic and dealing with that idea of you know the the persecuted minority that catholics were in ireland and of course christians were you know the roman times i think there's something interesting about the idea of the church represents another example of it should be what a church is meant to be is a place where the community comes together and a place of compassion and a place of helping the needy and helping those who need help and it has now gotten so vindictive that it's lost sight of that. And that's what Griffith says when he makes that statement saying, you fellas should have a union. You know, uh, they say, well, you're speaking out of your place. And he goes, my place is wherever there's injustice that I see. And I should speak out against it, which is very similar to uh, Henry Fonda's lines at the end of Grapes of Wrath of wherever there's somebody getting, I don't remember the exact wording. I should know. Uh, it's quoted in like mm -hmm. 95 Looney Tunes, but you guys know what I mean, right? <laughs> The, wherever, and, and every Batman movie. Yeah, wherever there's blank, I'll be there. Wherever there's, <laughs> yeah. wherever there's injustice, yeah. you know what I'm saying. You know that thing. Sure. It's very similar to that. But I just think that it's because of its vantage point. Uh, you know, it, its vantage point of uh, Young How. I think that there is something in this movie about the idea of basically saying a community and what this community was originally, at least as How knew it is. This, you know, we look out for each other. This is a place where people know each other and they look out for each other and everything. And then that just kind of, it was gone and it could never come back. And I think that, I mean, this is in, in a way, I was trying to think of how to describe this film in terms of uh, the, on, on the one hand, it's a pastoral, you know, it's this nostalgic look at, uh, you know, life in the country. But there's this specific subcategory of movie, I think, um, and I'm sure you guys know what I'm talking about in terms of like a movie that is explicitly about reflecting on the moment right before an era died. Mm -hmm. Like uh, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas is obviously Hunter Thompson's treatise on, on sort of the high watermark of the, the 60s. Uh, recently, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is very much... I mean, that entire uh, Rolling Stones montage of the lights coming out in L.A. for, you know, of all these places that have shut down. Fiddler on the Roof is is an older version of that. You know, I, I feel like there's this specific kind of movie that is very much about this was a time and a place. And it just it just is gone now. It's it's I fuck, I'm going to say it. I hate it. I just thought it's gone with the wind. It's, you know, that's wow. how it's gone. It has gone. It has passed. You know, you can uh -huh. see that connection. You guys know what I'm talking about, right? You see what I'm saying? Yeah, of course. Of course. Yeah. It's, I, I think that that's kind of, you know, and I, I, the thing that I thought was interesting is, is, um, and I know this is probably more true for Patrick, uh, than Tom, just, I know your, your viewing histories, but Patrick, did you end up, when you were a kid, did you watch a lot of those live action Disney movies from like the, the fifties and sixties? Did you get a oh yeah, and also, I mean, I don't know if you know this. My during a lot of lockdown, I mean, starting when Disney Plus came out, my roommate and I oh, said, right, of "We're we're gonna watch every uh, 
movie, theatrically released movie on Disney Plus in chronological order. So we watched every single one of those things, every, uh, you know, the Pollyannas and every like uh, so nature dear, documentary yeah. and those Callaways, Campbell shoe and, you know, the, God, those, ca- those Callaways was uh, <laughs> a, a, a de- demarcation point in our apartment. Cause that was when we took like two months off. We were like, <laughs> I can't finish watching those Callaways. That was like, it was a big moment for us. I mean, there's so many of those, any of those, because Walt, uh, Walt Disney himself was obviously uh, very, as much as he was a futurist, he was very nostalgic, you know, for yes. Marceline and all that. I mean, you know, that's Main Street and all the parks. And so there were so many of those movies um, so dear to my heart. And even uh, the one that no one's seen, Song of the South, you know, they all have that uh, feel to it. And the thing that I thought so was so interesting about this was that, it would be very easy to zone out during this movie, half watch mm-hmm. it, and mistake it for one of those. Yeah, who would do that? Who would zone out midway through watching this movie? I don't know anyone who would do that. <laughs> well, I think it's like, it's one of those things where, like, there's a lot of darkness going on in this movie, and but it's still playful because it's still through a child's eyes. Mm-hmm. Um and I, I think the one thing, like Tom brought it up earlier, but the one moment of this movie that to me goes full uh, old early Disney movie is the boxing stuff. That sure. this movie is about a family in turmoil and about so much crisis. And I think it can be jarring uh, the first time to watch this. And then all of a sudden it just takes a detour into this very light scene about Boy gets bullied at school, gets taught to box, teacher whips mm-hmm. him, so the old townies show up and wallop the hell out of the teacher. Uh, yeah. It, it feels like that's the one that if you told me that was in an old Fess Parker movie uh, <laughs> that played on Wonderful World of Color, I'd believe you. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And I know, Tom, you've said that's your, your favorite part of the film. I mean, obviously, it's about a bunch of drunken <laughs> men from a mining town beating up a teacher for beating up a child. I mean, that's that's like what right more up could my you alley. want? I mean, ex- exactly the best. Fuck Citizen Kane, is in my opinion. Uh-huh. <laughs> I kid, don't don't haunt me tonight, Orson. <laughs> um, but the one thing I think is interesting about that is is this is an episodic movie, right? I mean, it's it, it there's not yeah. a single narrative running through it much again in the same way as gone with the wind kind of there's not mm-hmm. a singular plot in gone with the wind it's kind of just these moments through scarlett o'hara's story in the same way i do think there's something about that scene that the first time i watched it, it felt very out of place but now i think it kind of it does indicate because how now he's leaving his valley um he He does have to leave. He does have to move into the modern world. And I do think there's something about that scene that kind of conveys sort of a, I don't want to say a chip on his shoulder, but this idea of even if he's in mainstream society and he's got to wear a fancy suit and go all these places, the old town made sure to impart a bit of that into him, you know, Mm -hmm. a a bit of that, that fighting spirit, a bit of that grit. Uh, especially because I think before the teacher gets beat up, the thing that I find so interesting about that the second time around is that, yeah, the kids kind of bully him. But when he starts fighting back, the other kid seems to respect him. 
Yeah, yeah, they respect each other. And then it's... when the teacher starts whipping him, he he tells him, you know, well, he says he's not going to snitch and say why they're fighting. And then he tells him to bite down hard on the, the, I don't know, the handkerchief. That yeah, the, the little, little girl, girl tells him to bite down on the handkerchief. Yeah. And then he, and then the then the kid he's fighting with says, yeah, bite down hard. Yeah. Uh, you know, they, they kind of have that little moment together. Um, I, I, I just also love the moment with, it, um, with the, with all that stuff, because it comes back later when uh, the father gets trapped and eventually killed in the mine at the end mm-hmm. and they're bringing, you know, all the people are trying like, Oh, who, who's going to go down there? And the guy die Bondo, the guy who teaches them how to fight. It's like, Oh yeah, I'll go down there. I can still swing an ax. He's like, no, but you're, you're blind. Yeah. You, <laughs> you, you like, you got punched in the head too often, but he's yeah. still just like, well, no, like that's just the right thing to do. Like what, what I guess, you know, cause he's the only one that's not been poisoned by the mine. <laughs> Like, well, and you have capitalism of the mind. You have the very John Ford joke in there, like because Ford does have his own sense of humor. You have that very John Ford moment when he turns to the other guy, uh, Barry Fitzgerald, and he says, uh, uh, "He says, you know, oh, will you come with me?" And he goes, "Well, no, I'm too much of a coward for that, but I'll hold your coat." Yeah, which is just a a good little, you know, a good little Ford yeah. gag there. It's it's just. And it's funny talking about the teacher thing, you know, now talking about it, thinking about it, it does go back to kind of the point, uh, even, you know, you were making, Tom, about about the the way that power kind of pits people against each other. Because if anything, these kids are, are, are shitty to Roddy McDowell, but it's only because the actual person in power cracking the proverbial whip kind of pits them against each other. You well, because it's a class thing. Because yeah. he's from the dirty little mining town, the, that dirty little valley. He's a little, you know, he's got a shitty little accent, and go after him. He's he's one of the poor's, which you know gets gets. It's all about fucking capitalism and class. It just it all sucks. Like that's basically the what Ford is getting at here. Capitalism and class and all this bullshit is gonna tear us all apart, and it's gonna. I mean, you know, I I it, it popped in my head before, but like it. I, we're going to cover this soon. I mean, this is just Harlan County, you know, USA. Yeah. Mm. It's it's all about these companies come in. They make themselves seem like, oh, they're good for us. They're good for you guys. We're going to make this town great. And then, no, they bleed the town dry and leave everyone holding the bag at the end. It's, yeah, I mean, and I I do want to highlight, you know, Patrick, you started this off talking about the visuals on this, right? Mm. And looks, mm-hmm. I mean, there were certain moments... Uh, first off, it's very weird. I, I understand, you know, uh, everybody talks about Citizen Kane and how great it is and how it should have won and all that. The one thing that strikes me is when you hear the conversations about Kane and how unique it was and how boundary breaking it was, uh, in contrast to, and they always confess to how green was my valley, like this ordinary sure. movie. I think it's kind of striking when you watch this and see how many things that get attributed to Kane also happened in this movie like mm-hmm. one of the things you always hear about citizen kane is he showed ceilings he yes. angled the cameras down and he showed ceilings yeah and then you're watching this and to convey their little hovel that they live in yeah ford is letting you see the ceilings a lot of the ceiling yeah, yeah. that's a great point and the same way that like kane they talk about well that opening that opening you know you do the newsreel and it's you know you're telling us the whole story and then that great moment where we push uh, from the the room where Mrs. Kane is talking about her kid, out the window to Charlie Kane with mm-hmm. the sled. The first shot of this movie is panning from adult Hal packing his bag 
out a window. And then, like, the first 15 minutes of this movie are just montage with dialogue of how explaining everything. And I mean, I just... Mike, I'm going to say it. I'm going to say it. It sounds like you're trying to start a beef between How Green Is My Valley and Citizen <laughs> Kane again. A beef that was squashed almost 80 years ago, and you're trying to get it started again. No, I'm, I'm truly not. It's truly just a case of, like, I do think that this movie's reputation as the movie that beat Citizen Kane and the conversation around Citizen Kane being Hollywood just wasn't ready for it and how bold and daring it was, I think has created a larger disparity in people's minds between these two movies than there actually is. I mean, it's literally the opposite of what happened at the time, which is fucking the industry kind of revolted against Citizen Kane because the PR machine made everyone hate Citizen Kane. Yeah. And, you know, it got booed and shit at the Oscars, you know. I mean, it's this narrative that it was like the little engine that could and everybody loved it, but oh no, how green was my valley beat? That's not the case. It's no. not the case at all. And I, you know, it's it's bullshit. And I think to what Patrick was saying, I think Mike wants a companion piece to Mank. He wants Llewellyn uh-huh. about, about this 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 weird little British man who pretends to be Welsh, who, who manages to con it. It's the informant. He wants black and white, super detailed, technical with like, oh, we recorded it like they did in 1941, but about this weird man who tricks an industry into making his. I mean, it's not movie. a bad. It's not a bad idea. I the informant too. I don't like. <laughs> I don't like that we have now created a dynamic that's just Patrick and Tom gang up on Mike. I'm. I'm yeah. I didn't expect this happening, and now it's happening. Um, I'm totally fine. With that. I was. Well, if anybody's <laughs> gonna gang up on Mike. Obviously, I'm teaming up with them. Is this? <laughs> is this Patrick? Is this just how you balance out what happens to you on George Lucas talk show? Because absolutely, Griffin, Griffin and Connor gang up on you, and now it's just you see this as the, yeah. As the, the, I need the, to. I, I get enough of it, and I say I'm not taking this when I go on other people's shows. <laughs> if I have to deal with it, other people have to deal with it. And it's also, uh, you know, part of me just being stuck inside my house for almost a month. <laughs> you know, I just need to get it out somehow. I okay. Yes. I'll say this last thing on Kane, and I, and this is all I, I want to say, which is the thing that's <laughs> interesting about it, and that the way that it's set up is that, and the way that we talk about like, oh, how good about Valley beating Citizen Kane? I'm I can tell you the person who would hate that di- dynamic the most is Orson Welles. Orson Welles was the biggest admirer of John Ford. You know, there's that great quote. Uh, you, I'm sure Tom knows where I'm going with this too, but where they say, you know, who are your influences? And Wells said, I admire the old masters, John Ford, John Ford, and John Ford. And mm-hmm. that, uh, I was listening to a commentary track on the How Crazy by Valley Blu-ray. Wells starts shooting, or starts working on Magnificent Ambersons right when How Green Was My Valley debuts and really admired the film. And How Green Was My Valley is a big influence on Magnificent Ambersons. He, yeah, he's such a big John Ford fan that it's, Almost like when he started making his movie, he was thinking in ways that Ford would think. And so there's these, you know, shared visual elements to it. I mean, like, this movie does feel like the entire flashback to to, uh, Wells, um, excuse me, Kane, as a kid with Rosebud, but, like, Mm. stretched out to the entire movie. Like, this is before we get to him owning the newspaper, you know? Yeah, absolutely. It's... And it, it just, you know, back to the Ortor thing, you know, 
or tours get their inspirations from somewhere, and it's not like fucking cinema was a lot around for a good long time when Citizen Kane came out. He didn't have much to choose from. It was John Ford or, you know, Monroe. That doesn't well, feel Howard right Hawks, for Kane. You know, I know, but it's like right. it's one of those things. Like, it's not like today where you could choose from a thousand different filmmakers to work on. Who then you think, well, they're kind of just working from John Ford too, but. Now, mm. Now, you know. this this is a good time, unless anybody has any last How Green Was My Valley notes, uh, to pivot uh, to... Oh, I do. Oh, yes. Oh, please, go right ahead. Well, because I think we... I kind of want to get into the... You know, we, we, dis, we, we've we been discussing, oh, it beat Citizen Kane, but, like I, like, I feel like we should get into, like, the why it beat Citizen Kane, and, and which then gets into why it's in the registry. Well, that's what I was and... going to say. We're about to talk about the Oscars. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Because... It struck me watching it the second time, you know, knowing what the movie is kind of helps you appreciate it more. Because, yeah, yeah, first time I watched it, I was like, this is boring and kind of overlong. Then the second time I watched it, it moved pretty fast, knowing what it was. But it struck me the second time, this is 1941. The Depression is still affecting everybody, even if it had ended, quote unquote, or was basically at the tail end of its run. Yeah. People knew full well what it was like to not work what it was like for corporations and these businesses to throw people out and make people compete with each other standing in front of the gates you know seeing if we'll be the ones that are picked today seeing their you know friends and family have to leave you know it's a reason why grapes of wrath was such a big movie the year before and um, I, I think it's a reason why you know, How Grim's My Valley was so big in 41 and why people kind of weren't willing to see a movie about the kind of rich guy who would put people out of work during the Depression. And, you know, it's interesting you say that, Tom, to the other end of that, the war is going on, you know? It just started. Um, well, yeah, not for us. And, well, yeah, just for us, but like... Yeah, and so the war is going on, and think about another element of this movie and a, a scene that um, I completely missed the first time I watched it. I noticed, but didn't really focus on the second time. And then this time, watching earlier today, uh, I actually like felt a a ping, you know, like a, a pain from it. Is that moment? Because obviously the the children leave. The one like is it South Africa? Yeah. The, the some of the sons go to America, and there's that moment when the mother Sarah Allgood has a map in front of her, and she's drawing lines to try and connect where all of her children are. And number one, you know, when you remember when this movie is set, uh, you think about it, like, if your kids took off, if your son or daughter went off to another country, you just didn't see them again. You know? Yeah. Like, you you just didn't, they were just gone. And then on, uh, think about how that must have felt to audiences for whom their sons are being sent off across the ocean the opposite direction. You know, they're going off to Europe, they're going off to fight, and you don't know if you're ever going to see them again. A movie this sentimental about that idea of loss and that idea of, you know, especially, like you said, Tom, you know, here we are in America, sure, there's a war raging in Europe, but whatever, there's a war raging in Europe, who cares, uh, was the sentiment to, you know, to some degree at the time. And then Pearl Harbor's attacked, and that's it we're in the war and I, i'd imagine a lot of americans did have this feeling like the movie suggests from house point of view of i don't know what's going on but something something's lost now and we're never getting it back 
I mean, especially because I don't think they ever specify exactly the year this story's or the years uh, this story takes place in, but it almost feels pretty clear that World War One's about to break out, and all of these boys, the Morgan boys, are probably going to end up fighting in World War One, and that's another thing, you know, that's probably going to make life even worse for the the Morgans and their Welsh life and just again that thing people watching it at the time like oh yeah like my father went to world war one or uh my son's now going to fight in europe or uh japan or whatever it's without ever being miserable the movie's not like bleak and it's not like you know citizen kane's kind of a sarcastic movie it's got a bit Mm -hmm. of an irony and a wink to it which uh, is not always uh, immediately appreciated in cinematic form. Yeah. Uh, you got to assume, especially in 1941, people were maybe like, hey, things suck. Stop being fucking smart and just entertain me. <laughs> well, do you guys think Frank Tree and Captain Wild Bill Kelso saw this movie? <laughs> are, the, are those the characters? Motor Sergeant Frank Tree and God, are Captain... Those the, are those the characters from 1941? Yeah, they are. Kyle, when you edit this, please keep in the sound of Patrick typing as he's searching the names of the characters <laughs> from 1941. <laughs> Wait! Oh my god! Patrick, truly, you saying that just reminded me of something that Tom and I both said we were going to bring up that we forgot to bring up, so that works great. Yeah. Which is sure. part of the oh, reason good. this movie is in, in, in my view and Tom's view, is that no, it does not have the cultural cachet now that it did then. But to me, all of the movies that you dis- that that we now describe as Amblin movies, um, you know, I mean, mm. that Tom made this observation to me that like the Smallville portion of John Williams' Superman score sounds very much like the score of this movie. Sure, that. So much of the of the Amblin-esque stuff that Spielberg does and Lucas does, anything nostalgic that they do, um, a lot of it draws from this. I mean, Spielberg's a huge John Ford fan, but th- the fact that you see it in this movie, in everything from, you know, from the most obvious Amblin-type movies to things like Empire of the Sun, any of this small-town life and, and the small-town America that, that we call Spielberg in, um, that everybody copies now all the way through to Ghostbusters Afterlife doing it. It's not hard to see that as Spielberg Americanizing the mining town in Wales in How Green Was My Valley. Sure. Now, do you know who did the music for this? Uh, I can look this up unless you have it on. I don't hand. want you to. I don't want you okay. to. I won't. I it's, a man named, it's a man named Alfred Newman. Oh, okay. Who, yes. Whose son is david newman who did the music for galaxy quest and jingle all the way and viva rock (laughs) vegas and uh norbit and serenity but whose nephew is mother frickin randy newman no way really randy newman's uncle did the music for this movie that's wild wow that's cool yeah. Alfred Newman won nine Academy Awards, nominated 45 times. He did not win this year. How Great Is My Valley sure. did not win score, and we can talk about why, which is... So let's... let's uh, When we get to that one, I'll make a note of that one. So let's talk about this real quick. How Green Was My Valley won Best Picture. The other mm-hmm. nominees were Blossoms in the Dust, the aforementioned Citizen Kane, 
which is in the registry. Uh, here comes Mr. Yeah. Jordan, which is surprisingly not in the registry. Uh, here comes Mr. Jordan. Hold back the dawn, the little foxes, the Maltese falcon, one foot in heaven, Sergeant York, and Suspicion. It was nominated for Best Director, which it won for John Ford, making it the second time because he had won the year prior for The Grapes of Wrath. Uh, nominated for Best Supporting Actor for Donald Crisp. Donald Crisp won that year. So it did win Best Supporting Actor, even though arguably Donald Crisp is the lead of this movie. Uh, or Roddy McDowell is yeah. the lead. They credit Walter Pidgeon and Maureen O'Hara as the leads. They're not. They're just above the title. Um, sure. Best Supporting Actress for Mary Allgood was a nomination, but she lost to Mary Astor for The Great Lie. Uh, it was nominated for Best Adapted Screenplay, lost to Here Comes Mr. Jordan. Here's the interesting one. It was nominated for Best Scoring of a Dramatic Picture, but it lost to a movie that is either called All That Money Can Buy or The Devil and Daniel Webster. It went by both titles. Hmm. Uh, and that is also hmm. the only Oscar for legendary composer Bernard Herrmann. Oh, wow. Right? That's crazy. Yeah. Uh, it was also nominated for Best Sound Recording, and it lost to That Hamilton Woman. It won Best Art Direction. It won Best Cinematography, Black and White. And it lost Best Film Editing to Sergeant York. So that is how, how Green Was My Valley fared at the Oscars. I do also want to say, before people come for me, I know that Thomas Newman is also Alfred Newman's son. Thomas Newman, who did Shawshank and Cinderella Man and Wally and Skyfall and uh, 1917 and so many things. There, he's also his son, before people uh, blow up my Twitter, you know? So I have one question for you, Patrick, uh, after all session, and then we are going yeah. to transition into our second thing, which is... Sure. You know, you were kind of lukewarm on this movie, having watched it the first time. But, mm -hmm. you know, uh, Tom and I both uh, enjoyed it more the second time. Uh, after this discussion, do you think yeah. if you watched How Green Was My Valley again, you will, you will come away uh, liking it more? I think I would maybe like it more if I saw it in a movie theater mm -hmm. and not uh, when I was antsy on my couch midday, you know, lights are on, I'm trying to send emails a little bit. You know, I think all of these things are always a uh, 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 deterrence to me liking a movie. So it was probably my fault a little bit. And I always like a movie more in a movie theater than I do in my living room. So I, you know, I'm not saying I will ever watch the movie again. But I think that's also partially, uh, you know, this is very far out of my usual taste for different movies. Like, this is not a movie I would usually seek out on my own. Um, but maybe I would like it more. I think if the, uh, you know, if the situation was very different, I think I would like it more. So let's say if, uh, if I'll put it out there, if Metrograph or one of these rep houses out here yeah. is doing a screening, I will buy you a ticket. Let's, let's and go, I'll go and let's see if it And works. I'll go. Sure. Great. Now, we will be right back, uh, not with Registry Picks, we'll be right back to talk about the PlayStation 1 game, <laughs> Jedi Power. <laughs> now we are here to uh, fulfill an obligation we talked ourselves into. Um, that's right. We are now going to talk about the PlayStation 1 video game, Jedi Power Battles. Uh, mm -hmm. Now, Patrick, you uh, own a copy of this game, and you said you played it earlier today, right? Yeah, yeah. And I do want to already clear up uh, a problem that you have with this. 
Um, it is called Star Wars Episode One Jedi Power Battles, and it's on the PlayStation and the Sega Dreamcast. They later put it on the Game Boy Advance, where they took uh-huh. off the Episode One and just called it Jedi Power Battles. Oh. So I just want to clear that up. No, that's fine. In case people are confused. No, if we're going to be doing corrections, Patrick, then uh, okay, yeah. fine. I didn't want to do this, but I would like to point out that in our Star Wars episode. Yeah, you sure. do say we're going to talk about the game, and we can talk about Kiadi Mundi's yellow lightsaber. And I'd like to point out, it is Plo Koon. not it's not Plo one of the playable Jedi's in the game. So, well, you know. uh, hey, you know, man, I didn't want to do this. I feel really bad about this. You can unlock Kiadi Mundi. Oh, he is a I, secret character after really? you finish the game. Are you shit? I didn't. Me? I didn't want to do this. <laughs> Is that, not want is to that do real? This. There were unlockable Jedi's at the end. When you when now I've never beat this game, and I think I realized that today. <laughs> when you beat this game, apparently you can unlock Queen Amidala if you beat it as Obi Wan, uh, Captain Korsh Panaka if you beat it as Obi Wan, Darth Maul if you beat it as Qui Gon Jinn, and on the Dreamcast only if you beat Training Mode with any normal Jedi, you unlock Kiari Mundi. Okay. So, how does gameplay fun? Like, do do Amidala and, and do they have lightsabers, or are they given blasters? Probably just guns. I I like to think they have lightsabers, but I imagine it's got to just be a gun. Well, then if they have guns, it changes the entire dynamic. I feel like that game's so much yeah. easier then. Yeah, yeah. Listen, I didn't make the game. You can't get mad at me. Well, then so, who do I get mad? So at? you just <laughs> because we want to get mad. Um, I think his name is George Walter Lucas, I want to say. <laughs> well, you have an in with him. You do a show with him, so yeah. please let him know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, sure. Um, but, okay, so you have a PlayStation 1 still? I have a PlayStation 2, but PlayStation 2 is backwards compatible yeah, with all no, PlayStation that's, 1 Okay, games. so you played, you played it on the PlayStation 2. How did that work for you? Did everything work fine for you? Now, I had to tear apart my gosh darn apartment. Looking for A, my PlayStation 2, and B, my uh, CD of Jedi Power Battles. They were in separate boxes in separate rooms of my apartment. I knew I had it here because I was on Mary Houlihan's painting party a couple months ago. And for some reason, we were drawing and painting stuff. And I was like, I'm going to draw Jedi Power Battles. So I drew the cover for Jedi Power Battles. Um, so I was like, I know it's in my apartment, and if you could see my bedroom right now, it's a disaster just because there are just boxes open. <laughs> There's, like, Rubbermaid tubs strewn everywhere. Uh, yeah, so I have it. Um, I've had it since I got my PlayStation 1 in probably 2002, uh, Christmas 2001, maybe. I've had it since around then. And, yeah, I I was shocked when I – it all worked fine. I set it up on my TV in my bedroom because it was just easier to find the um the red, yellow, white plugs for the for the PlayStation to go in. Um it did not fill my entire screen. <laughs> yeah. It was kind of like when you get like an old DVD from like 2000 or something and you have to like adjust the uh, aspect ratio to make it fit. Yep. Um yep. it looked bad. <laughs> yep. The graphics looked very bad, mm-hmm. and yeah. I did not remember that. Yeah. Um. And uh, it was hard. Yeah. Yeah. It's really hard. Yeah. And yeah. now listen, I I, I don't want to give off the impression that I beat this whole game today, 
because I did beat the first level. I got through the first level mm -hmm. and I shockingly like remembered a lot of the first. I was like, oh, there's a guy coming up on the left. There's a guy wow, coming up on the right. Really? I have not. I played that first level so many times because it was so hard. Yeah. Um, And I was shocked at how much I actually remembered it. Uh, and then I got through some of Naboo and I died. And because I didn't have a memory card in, yeah, it gave me a game over. And I went to, I was like, oh, okay, that's fine. I'll start at the beginning of the Nambu level again. And it was like, ah, 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 you got to do the first level again because yeah. you didn't save the game. <laughs> so I said, never mind. I'm good. Yeah, smart decision. So we had a, yeah, we had a similar yeah. thing. Well, first off, I will confess. So we talked about Jedi power battles and I, I was convinced I had it. And I'm pretty sure I yeah. do. But um, yeah. uh, my father has all that stuff. And uh, my course. father has a lot of uh, Star Wars merchandise and other merchandise. Uh, as you now know firsthand, Patrick. Uh, yes, it's all, it's, it's been in my house for a year. It's in the process of being shipped out to people as we speak. Um, so uh, I looked and I couldn't find it. And yeah. I was so concerned about this that I just bought it cheap on eBay. Which means <laughs> yeah. at a certain point, when I do find the original, I'm just going to have two copies of Jedi Power Bros. I love it. Um, and so... I mean, now Tom, get, now Tom gets one. Oh, oh I, I'm sure he's... So excited for it. Um, we uh, we agreed to get together this weekend to play it, um, which, yeah. you know, I, I have to give credit to Tom. Normally, if I say uh, we need to do something for the sake of a goofy bit, he goes, mm -hmm. you have fun with that. Um, <laughs> but it was game. Uh, I realized I did not know where the component cables were for my PlayStation. So that Amazing. morning, I had to run out. I had to drive a uh, half hour away oh, no. to the only GameStop that had oh, no. component cables for it. Uh, got to Tom's, at which point we discovered the TV in his living room, his nice TV, uh, did uh -huh. not have the ports for the component cables. Yeah. So, yeah. like you, we had to go to his bedroom TV, except that did not actually have the proper ports for it either. Oh, no. We plugged it into what we thought would work, and that resulted in... And I believe I tweeted a picture uh, of the title screen at you so people can look this up. Uh, it was entirely in black and white. <laughs> and there was like a weird fuzz at the top of the screen. Uh-huh. Uh, so, like you I, said... I don't think I actually saw... I don't think I saw this. I'm going to go yeah, find it now. That like, like, um, yeah, like you said, it looked bad. It looked yeah. bad. It looks worse without color. You sure. don't say. Also... Sure. It's also impossible to know what you're actually clicking. Yeah. Because options like easy mode and Jedi mode, because there's two modes of play yeah. in one, are, are based on, like, which one is highlighted. Black and white, you're not getting that. Well, um, I'll say this. I'll say this. You feel about this, apparently, the same way I feel about how green is my valley. I'm never going to know how green that dang valley is. That's and true. you're never going to know what the colors of this game are. That is true. That is true. So. Because it is, yeah, it is indeed in black and white for us. Um, we agreed that what we would do is uh, we would play through each Jedi. Oh, so wow. we would start with, I believe we started with Obi-Wan. Mm -hmm. No, we started with Mace Windu. We started with Mace Windu. Sure. And sure. agreed, like, we would play through his... Because you get, like, six lives per Jedi. Yeah. Like we would play yeah. through his six lives and then move on to the next Jedi. And we either were going to beat the game or run out of Jedi. <laughs> Spoilers. Mm -hmm. We ran out of Jedi and never made it past the first level. Mm-hmm. Um, now, did you play yeah. normal mode or Jedi mode? 
I have no fucking clue. Because you sure. would need the screen to be in color to know which one we selected. Yeah, yeah. Also, let the record show, uh, he's silent right now, but Tom did play one lifespan of Mace Windu. Okay. Uh, did play it, lost, then hurled the controller back at me, said, fuck this, I'm getting some chocolate. <laughs> and then when it was his turn again, I said, you're up. And he just looked at me and went, no, I'm not doing that. And proceeded <laughs> to sit and just watch the gameplay. And his primary input was just telling me which Jedi to pick next. Yeah. Um, for anyone so wait, Tom, you didn't, e- you didn't even get to play as everyone's favorite Jedi, Adigalia? <laughs> uh, sadly, I did not. Because the gameplay frustrated me oh so much that I had to oh, yeah. uh, uh, leave my, my one great love uh, unplayed. <laughs> Yeah. It's... Oh well. So to be clear for anyone listening, uh, your options to play is yes, as as Patrick might have noted earlier, Plo Koon, Obi Wan, Mace Windu, Qui Gon, and Addy Gallia. Uh huh. Um, we all remember Addy Gallia. We all had the action figure. We all know her triumphant moments in the film. We don't need to go over all that. Now listen, uh, I do want to say this. We're joking about Addy Gallia. Her voice is in Rise of Skywalker. Is she? Is it really? She's one of the voices that says like Rise Ray up at the end. Wow. And she's hearing all really? yeah. Adigalia clearly recorded in Rise of Skywalker it came out. Yes. Now, do you yeah. think? Do you honestly? Do you think that is something where? Because uh, this happens sometimes. Do you think this is a situation where they were like, "Let's get everybody we can," or it was a thing of, "Let's send out an email to everybody. Mm-hmm. Let's show them how low the rate is. Yeah, and let's see who." decides well, yeah they got the a lot work. they got a lot of them and and to be fair it's the actress from clone wars not from the film oh okay not that not that i don't i don't think Jin clark is uh is doing much but no but uh, I, i've heard that story of people who like i, I listen to do you listen to podcast the ride uh yeah 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 so they had somebody on once talking about like who'd done a voice in one of the rides and they said like well yeah you're in the ride what's that like what's the pay like and he goes if you got nothing else going on that day, you take it. Sure, yeah. And this that feels like one of those, like, do you of have course. anything else going on? No? All right. Yeah. Yeah, come, come to look. Freddie Prince Jr., want to come stand on mic for like yeah. five minutes? Yeah, okay. Yeah. It'll we'll take a like half hour. Yeah, you get you get 500 bucks or 750 yeah. bucks, whatever it is. Yeah, I can't imagine there's residuals on that. Um, I have I, no at idea. At that level, I can't yeah. imagine. Well, you're the producer. I figured you might have an in on that one. You I'm not a residuals that. guy, though. You know, I just, <laughs> listen, I just play the video games, and that's it. <laughs> And and get your occasional uh, your occasional PGA screeners. Yeah, you know. that's it. Yeah, that's the real that's the real perk. Uh, it's true. Um, it's true. You know. So we didn't. So we didn't like the game. That's what I'm I, hearing here. I'm I'm I remember playing it when I was younger, and yeah. I remember getting pretty far in it. Yeah. And this time around, whether it was the color or the because it's also a thing of like when you go from playing modern video games to an older vintage yes. game. Yeah. Like Tom has talked to me a couple times about. Um, him and, and friends of his, I don't remember who it was, um, Tom, if you want to shout them out, you're welcome to, but Tom and friends of his. Oh, it's me, me and my friends, Anthony and James playing, pulling out an old N64 and trying to play Goldeneye. Oh yeah. And that, it's a mess. And that horrible moment, that horrible moment when you realize, oh wait, the N64 controller only had one joystick. How did we play first person shooters? Sure. And then you have that nightmare experience of going, oh, this doesn't, this just doesn't work. Yeah. Great. And then you get frustrated. Yeah, yeah. Leave. It was now, it was trying. Yeah. 
I've been playing my Switch a lot, and I've been downloading a lot of old games on there. So I feel like I've gotten used to seeing janky graphics again and, like, janky, uh, uh, you know, controls where I'm like, oh, this they didn't port this over the best way that they could have. Yeah. Like, this is very hard to play. And this, you know, you don't have the excuse of it being, oh, this is bad controls. When they put this on a new system, they must have messed up and not really put in the work because it, this is the original system. But just, like, turning around in this game is a whole A thing. nightmare. It's yeah. a nightmare. It's so hard. Uh, jumping is very hard. Oh, yeah. Just oh, like... my God. Yeah. That, there was that one thing. conveyor belt where you have to yes. jump across, we died like four or five times. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, even like running is hard. I had to like look yeah. up how to run. I couldn't. I was like, there's no way where I'm just supposed to walk this slow the entire time. And we should say it's a basic, it's like a platformer game where you're basically just walking around killing battle droids pretty much the whole time. Um. Battle droids that don't entirely act like battle droids. No. Did that strike you? Like, Tom and I noticed, like, it's weird that, like, when you first emerge, because it basically, yes. the first level is similar to the actual Episode 1 PlayStation game. Which yeah. Which I played the shit out of. Of course. Um, where you emerge, like, TC-14 guides you out of a chamber, right? Yeah. You don't cut your way out, but you know, you walk out and you are swarmed by five battle droids. And in all of our time seeing battle droids in not just episode one, but in, you know, or in the prequels, but in Clone Wars, they shoot blasters. It's what they yes. do. Yeah. Why do five of them swarm you and proceed to punch you? Uh-huh. Punch now, you and throw in little kicks. Well, here's the other thing. When you get later in the level, and I don't know if you even got to this, you come up on destroyer droids. We did, yeah. We came up on destroyer droids. Now, the, the, did the destroyer droids punch you? Because no, they punched me. They, they punched me. Why? I don't know. <laughs> I have no idea. <laughs> what a what a great game. How did we play games back then? What were I don't we know. even doing? Were I mean, just, the, the, but that, game, fr- the, the episode ideas. one game is, the episode, the episode one game is fun. The episode one game was fun. Pod Racer ruled. Yeah, yeah, I've been playing Pod Racer on my Switch. Yeah, it holds up really, really well. Yeah. Um, We got about as. I'll tell you where we maxed out, um, because we only got uh, to one point, which is. uh, Because you're right about, like, remembering the patterns and all. Mm -hmm. Uh, When we started, I was trying to rack up as much points as possible. So, like, you can use your lightsaber to destroy the consoles. You can take out the TC 14 droids, and you get extra points for that. After a while, I was like, I don't care. I just want to get through. Yes, that's how I was, too. We got to the point. There's a point where you're running out on these platforms and there is a big ship mm-hmm. that's shooting laser blasts mm-hmm. at you. And at first, I'm just like, I'm at a complete loss. I'm going, what the fuck are we supposed to do with this? And finally, yeah. Tom, because mind you, Tom has not been playing for a while and has sure. been observing. So Tom is able to view things rationally instead of through <laughs> the blind rage I was in at that point. <laughs> um, and points out like, oh, I think you're supposed to deflect the blasts back yeah. at the ship. Yeah. Right. The problem is they also have stormtroopers, I mean, not stormtroopers, a battle droids swarming you as you're doing this. Yeah. yeah. So it's a pain in the ass. Um, yeah. Finally, I'm bouncing them back. Sure. And the only time we came to us, I destroyed that ship once. One time. Yeah. yeah. And in, in the most infuriating moment, I destroyed the ship. So I deflect, because it basically it blasts you twice. It shoots three blasts at you. You deflect it. And then it shoots another three. Mm-hmm. 
I deflect the blast for the final time. As it's shooting its second blast, I take out the ship, and one of the last blasts it let off <laughs> hits me and kills me. <laughs> I, I, I have attended full feature-length comedies with Tom where he has laughed less than he did in that moment. <laughs> As we successfully so defeated the ship only to die. Uh-huh. Um, never perfect. got further than that. Perfect. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it was not until we were on our fifth of five Jedis on our second to last life. Who are we talking? Are we talking Plo? No, Plo Koon? Who we talking? Quick. I think it was Qui-Gon. Mace. Qui-Gon was the last. It was Mace, Plo sure. Koon, Adigalia, yeah. Obi-Wan, Qui-Gon. We were on our last Jedi, second to last life. Sure. And it is only then that Tom notices and points out to me, oh, those little things that you're running and picking up immediately, I think some of those are health points Mm -hmm. to give you health back. You're not supposed to grab them right away. Yeah. Had no idea. Because it's like there's little things you can pick up along the way, and I think some of them are... I think each Jedi has some kind of special ability that I think is supposed to be triggered by hitting a button that I could not figure out the button. Yeah. Plo... Well, Plo, there's there's one that if you get it, it gives you a really big lightsaber. That we got, yes, the big lightsaber okay. we had. Yeah, but it was tough and it is very the, yeah yeah. Go ahead. No, I'm saying it was tough because especially with the black and white and all that, there was, I genuinely was questioning Tom like, is this a graphics glitch or is this a, a real thing? <laughs> That's very funny. Yeah, it, I was shocked by how hard it was, and then I was like, I get why I never got far in this game as a kid. I'm like looking at the 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 um levels and I'm like genuinely trying to figure out how far I probably got and I feel like maybe I got to Tatooine maybe that's like level 5 but I played this game so much that I'm like how did I not beat it It's it's telling that I forget if we said this on mic or not it's telling that when when um Patrick Willems was here uh on an episode I don't know if that's coming up before or after this but but um Patrick Willems was here and after we finished recording we were telling him about this upcoming episode um, and we were telling him about it. And when we mentioned Jedi power battles, he said, Oh, I remember that there's this level that is impossible. And it's telling how hard this game is that decades later. Yeah. You can still remember what a nightmare it was. Yeah. And I um, try to remember what other, did you guys play, Star Wars video games at the time. Oh, I, I, I mean, uh, some, yeah. For me, for sure. I mean, we bought I'm the N64 remember... just to have Pod Racer. Um, Masters yeah. of Terracossi was, was the... a big one. Um, what was that yeah. Shadow Recruit? What's the? Oh, Shadow yes, Shadows of the Empire. Shadows of the Empire. Shadows yeah. 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 I did a lot of uh, Galactic Battlegrounds. Hell, oh, what it was called? Yes, the Civilization game. Oh my god, I yes. loved that Galactic so Battlegrounds. Good. And I've desperately wanted to play it again. There's got to be some emulator or something out there. But I'm like, if you guys put that on Switch, I would play the hell out of it for so long. Um, I played this a lot. I played Episode 1 a lot. Um, i trying to remember what other... I'm, I'm, I think I had a, a Attack of the Clones for my Game Boy. But those were like the big ones for me. Episode 1 I played a lot, and I'm going to sell out my, my father a little bit on this one, because we would play that yeah. together, because I, you know, I was like eight or nine um sure. there's a moment early on in the original episode one game where you're obi-wan you're, you and quite you're obi-wan you're running with qui-gon mm-hmm. 
there mm-hmm. is you're running along this like um platform and there's a gap. Qui-Gon mm-hmm. jumps over the gap, you jump and fall down a chute. And now mm-hmm. you have to navigate some like underground tunnel system with with the droids rolling around and everything. And so I did that. The first time it was me and I went and I I you know fell and it looked like I just missed the jump. And yeah. that, and that 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 was avoidable. And yeah. so my father insisted like that's avoid like you just you no, we got to redo it. Uh-huh. Make the jump. And in uh-huh. my child mind this was like hours of us just sitting there like trying to make the jump and getting madder and madder that the yeah. game wouldn't let us make the jump, neither of us thinking that it was not a possibility. That's so funny. Like seemingly thinking that this was like that new Far Cry game that they had where if you just sit in the same spot, you win. Like the same kind <laughs> of thing where um, you know about that, right? Have you heard about this? No, I don't know about this. I don't know if it's the newest one, but there was one Far Cry game. I think it's just a recurring element in the Far Cry games yeah. where if you, with the opening of the game, if you just stay in place instead of go run out and <laughs> execute people and shit uh-huh. if like you wait for like 10 minutes the bad guy comes back and just explains everything to you and the game ends that's yeah so funny yeah so you win um but that's yeah so, so that was funny. that was how we uh i so i vividly remember that like trying to make that jump i got pretty far in episode one but but jedi power battles just i feel like that was one that i probably gave up on because i'm sure i've never been i played video games a, I, a lot as a kid particularly like a sims or like a galactic battlegrounds but I I feel like I was always a person where if I reached a certain... If I had to do something a certain number of times I in a mm-hmm. game, I just gave up. Yeah. Like, I just went like, no, this isn't... I, I think I said to Tom, I think I said to you when we started it up, like, my big thing with video games is is there should be an option for busier people um, where it's just like... Where there's the option of, hey, you failed to make this jump or solve this puzzle five times. You want to just skip ahead to the next part of the story? I'd, I would love yeah. that. That would make me so immensely yeah. happy. And I feel like some games did have that at some point. Like, if you were on a certain level of difficulty, there were there were options for that. But mm. I was not a big gamer growing up. I remember um, I did not have a lot of consoles, so I would go over a lot of friends' house to play them. But, like, we got a PS1 when PS2 came out, and we got a PS2 when PS3 came out. Like, we were a full generation behind. And I remember, and of course, I did not have any money at the time, you know, so my parents were buying the games for me. Yeah. And I remember one of the games my parents bought us was Chicken Run. Oh, the I game. had that. yep. And it was so hard. Yeah. And my friend would come over, and we would play it, just because we knew how frustrating it was. And to this day, we still talk about, like, how difficult that game was. And I think that holds the spot in Jedi power battles uh, holds for other people because at the time I did not realize how frustrating Jedi power battles was. I was like, Oh my gosh, this is like the peak of entertainment. And uh, now I'm like, Oh, I'm never, I'm probably never going to play this again. So as, as, uh, as we wind down, Patrick, I do want to, I do want to make a pitch to you. Okay. Sure. That's great. Cause I have a pitch for you. Oh, do you? Yeah. So go ahead. Okay, uh, you you want me to go first? Fine. All right. Yeah, yeah, I want you to go first. I was gonna say because this was this was a weirdly anticipated episode. Um, <laughs> again, it was a thing that we said, and probably uh-huh. if nobody else had brought it up to me, uh, yeah, we probably would have forgotten about. Um, of course, but but it has been brought up, and uh, when it has been brought up to other people on the show, I want you to know that anyone who knows you when I say this mm-hmm. just goes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm, yeah. Mm-hmm, I believe mm-hmm. I believe David Sims' exact response when we explained it all just went, 
Yeah, that sounds that sounds like Patrick. So your your brand is known. I wanted Great. to make a pitch to you. Yeah. Which is if you're open to it, you are welcome to pick another piece of Star Wars ephemera and we yeah. will have you back in season 3 to talk about a different film and make the latter half of that episode a discussion on whatever piece of Star Wars ephemera comes to your mind right now. We will do our research. If I mean, that's really, mind. yes. Um, now I had, I had one in mind, but I feel like it's maybe too easy. <laughs> so I sort of want, hang on. Give me, give me like one second. You can edit this out if you want. I, love I just you, want to. I love that you had one in mind. Does that, was that your pitch? Yes. Do you have, okay. I was, so we were on the same page here. We were on the exact same page. Fantastic. Um, Amazing. now here, oh gosh, I mean this this might be hard. Now here's what I'm thinking. <laughs> oh, okay. You know what? No, this game is available for PlayStation Two. This might be easier than I thought it was. Okay, it's another. Here's game? my pitch. Yes. Wait, hang on. It's a PS2 game. Yes. Can I guess? Yes. Is it Super Bomb Bad Racers? No. Fuck. I really thought I had that one. All nope. right. I want to watch the Monterey Pop Festival movie, which I believe is on the list. But that's not in season three. That's what's that on season well, later. We'll talk about the oh, movies for okay. season three later. We'll we'll look at the list uh, more more concisely once we have that sorted out. But okay. what's the what? <laughs> I do like that you called your shot what? on the Monterey Pop Festival, uh, yeah. which I think would when be you get in, to like, that. season twenty. <laughs> Great when you get to it, it's mine. It's it's locked in that deal. Okay, fine. Oh, I see. That was inducted in 2018. Yeah. So we wait, would... what what year is season three? Give me give me the the year. It's 1991. 1991. All right. Give me one second, and I will pick the movie. Hang on. Oh God. Um. Oh no. I'm gonna say. Well, I'm gonna do one that I want to talk about this time. <laughs> That's the thing. I think you've earned it. I think yes. so. Uh, let's do. Um. Oh, I know what I want to do. Okay. I want to do Frankenstein and Star Wars Bounty Hunter. Done and done. <laughs> Frankenstein well, meets Star yep. Wars Bounty yes. Hunter. And gentlemen, Bounty Hunter is available. It's a PS. It's a PS2 emulated version for the PS4, so yeah. it is available. Kyle, Kyle, I have the fucking PS2. Game. <laughs> what are we talking about? Of course, I have it here. I have it here, and it's another game. I think I got up to like level two on, and then couldn't get further. It's a pain in the ass. Uh, we're playing it at your house this time, not black and white bullshit. Now, I'll say this. I remember this game ruling. I remember this game being a lot of fun. We'll see. I'll say this. I remember the first level is called Dead or Alive Miko. That is the name of the first level. Can I Can I tell you something, Patrick? The best thing about this is that in season two, for this season, you ended up with How Green Was My Valley that no one is mm -hmm. clamoring for. <laughs> and in, in this one, you managed to pick a movie that I am thinking of every person who has said they want to come back on <laughs> and every single one oh, of I could change it. No, no, no. Okay. I instead I want to I want to tell people. I want to specifically tell like yeah. when 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 we send like Phyllis Gove or Patrick Willems the list and they go, yeah. wasn't Frankenstein on here? I yeah. want to tell them Patrick got <laughs> called it and half of it is going to be about a PS2 yeah. bounty hunter. Well now here's the thing. 91 is a good year. There's a lot oh, of yeah. good ones that year. So I I I knew there would be other stuff. I knew it was taking a good one, but I knew there would be other good ones. And I will have a lot more to say about Frankenstein, I think. You did not want to jump on Gigi? <laughs> no, I didn't. 
I didn't. I did read it quick, and I did think it was Gili. Um, and I was like, I, I'm shocked that that no, was in there. I'll just, uh, I'll just say for our listeners, uh, if you were surprised that this episode started with me and Tom both admitting, I didn't quite get why this was in there uh, when I first saw it, uh, and you want more of that in season three. Mm-hmm. Not a Gigi guy. Gonna be a fun one. Gotta figure <laughs> out my in. That was another one I watched. Like, oh, let's um. Let's see all the best pictures. Oh, okay. You know what you guys should do for that episode, though? What? You should watch Gigi and Gigli. I've I've seen Gigli. I, I tried to yeah. get Tom to watch Gigli once, and he just he just said... Tom, come on. Said, no. Have some fun, Tom. Come on. Listen, if it becomes a bit for the show, I guess I'll have to do it. Hey! Yeah. Here we go. I like the fact that I can't get Tom to do silly shit, but Patrick Cotter <laughs> has apparently figured out the key to it. I don't... Uh, I don't know how I did it. Um, I don't know how it's I did about it. being against Mike. That's, that's <laughs> yeah, that's it. That's fair. We, we and, just gotta and both be against Mike, and that's it. Yeah, I'll always be on your side there. <laughs> yeah, perfect. Exactly. How, he knows how to play the game, Mike. Uh-huh. Um, the game being Jedi power battles. <laughs> yes, because Mike didn't know how to play the game. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Patrick, thank you so much for joining us. Do you have anything you want to plug? Oh, man. Um, yeah, I mean, listen, watch the George Lucas Talk Show. We're doing it basically monthly at this point. You can watch it live at planetscum.live, or you can watch any of the old episodes on YouTube. I recommend just finding a guest that you like and watching that. You know, we've had Whoopi Goldberg. We've had Kevin Smith. We've had Jason Manzoukas, Darcy Carden, like uh, Robert Julian Wool. Glover, Robert Wool. Yeah, there's literally hundreds of people that we've had on. I recommend finding the guests that you like and watching it that way. I also produce a show called Rat Scraps, which is an improv show in New York where famous people come in and tell stories. And then people do improv based off of it. It's very fun. It's very silly. You can come see it in person every Sunday when there's not a uh, huge uh, COVID spike in New York. Um, Or you can stream it from anywhere in the world, full HD, three camera setup. Um, It's like eight bucks or something. It's a great deal. Um, and then you can follow me on Twitter at Patrick Cotner, P-A-T-R-I-C-K-C-O-T-N-O-I-R. I'm currently trying to get more followers than the canceled NBC show, The Blacklist Redemption. I'm very close. We'll see. We'll see how it goes. But that's about it. You right want to know, you want to know how long ago it was when you were last here. Oh, uh, you hadn't beaten 1600 pen yet on the follower count. Yeah. What, do you know the date of when I was here last? Because it feels like a very long time I don't ago. offhand, but it was a fucking, it was a long time. Because you were one of the... Was it 2020? It could have been 2020, right? Probably. The last time you were on here was uh, August 24th of 2020. Wow. A lot happened since then. A lot yeah. has happened. I was, I was re-listening to the Star Wars episode, and I heard, like, I, I said just two weeks ago... They made you sing That's a More with the words That's oh a Soiree. And you said to them, I don't like to be on camera. <laughs> and in the time since then, you're not only on every episode the full time, yeah. but you did a New York Comic Con panel where you simultaneously appeared on stage and on screen, <laughs> filming yourself talking yeah. about your experience as a PA on Ghostbusters Afterlife. So. No, Ghostbusters answer the call. Ghost, don't Ghostbusters get. The call. Don't, oh my god! Yeah, don't you? Right, right. How dare you mix me up with Ghostbusters Afterlife? <laughs> how dare you? Uh, you were not. Oh. You were not the PA for Muncher on on Ghostbusters Afterlife. <laughs> no, no. I. I mean, I would have liked that though. That's that's <laughs> the one. That's the one good gig. 
what a weird couple of years. Thank you for having me, guys. Thank you for joining us. Uh, absolutely. And for anybody, like you said, Rat Scraps, I was wondering how that was going to work as a live stream. I have been a regular watcher of the live streams, and they work great. You feel like you're there. I, I highly That's recommend great. checking that out. Uh, and we will see you uh, next year for, for Frankenstein, Frankenstein. Mm-hmm. and Bounty it's Hunters. Django Fett. Can't wait. I hope to God that, like, some big-time horror producer or director, like, finds the show and goes, guys, I'd love to be on. You got Frankenstein, and we have to look them in the eyes and just go, sorry, sir. Will you settle for poor little rich girl? Listen, I'll say this. I'll say this. If that happens, I am happy to give up Frankenstein as long as you will watch all of the sequels to that Frankenstein. That's my one trade-off. Oh, I have. That's something we've both done already. <laughs> okay. We're those people. <laughs> Patrick, thank you for joining us, but the rest of you stick around because we'll be right back with our picks for the National Film Registry. The National Film Registry isn't some fixed object, frozen in time. It's always growing, adding new titles every year. These annual selections are made by the National Film Preservation Board with members like Martin Scorsese, Alfre Woodard, and Leonard Moulton, and representatives from organizations like the Academy, the DGA, and the AFI coming together to debate and decide. But they don't just pull titles out of thin air. They pull from the public, people like you and us, who can submit their nominations for the registry in a form on the Library of Congress's website. What we do at the end of each episode is have Mike and Tom pick films not yet in the registry that they feel should be inspired by that day's topic. At the end of each season, those films will be formally submitted to the National Film Registry for consideration on behalf of your missing out. Here are today's picks. All right, boys, time for our registry picks. A reminder to our listeners, it must be an American film that's at least 10 years old. So my pick, I was thinking about, you know, there were a lot of things I could go with. This was one of those films where there wasn't an instant one-to-one, you know, where I, I saw the name on the list and went, oh, well, of course, this is the movie. It wasn't one of those cases, and there were a number of things that I was thinking about tangentially related, but the thing about this movie that really stuck out to me, and I mentioned this during our episode, is that it's one of those movies about the end of an era, about a time lost, a sense of home that is lost, and a family coming apart because of it. You know, this this strong father figure and mother figure whose children one by one start to go away and eventually have to leave their home. Um, That's the thing that really struck me. And as a result, then something really stuck out, you know, about the passage of time, um, which is a film from 1971, a musical film that it does kind of surprise me isn't in the registry, uh, which is Norman Jewison's adaptation of Fiddler on the Roof, the the 1964 Broadway musical. It's a movie that I think I had heard when I was growing up. I I didn't see it because there's a lot of controversy. Well, not controversy, but there were people who think Zero Mostel should have played the role instead of Topol because he would have played it more comedically. But when I finally saw it, it's an incredibly powerful epic. I mean, the story of uh, Fiddler on the Roof is is deeply moving about this this Jewish family in the town of Anatevka and, and the family comes apart. Um, and the beautiful thing about Fiddler on the Roof, both in its stage musical and its film version, it is, it is a movie about 
tragedy in a sense, but it is joyful and exuberant and defiantly Jewish and this this clinging uh, to a culture that that is is torn apart in in modernity. Now, of course, there is an adaptation of Sholem Aleim's uh, Tevi the Dairyman stories we'll actually be covering next season on the pod um, with the film titled Tevya. But that is, of course, you know, that, that is not the musical that everybody knows. That is not, you know, uh, Fiddler on the Roof is such an impressive undertaking. And not only that, when you look at that year, of the eligible Best Picture nominees in the registry from that year, French Connection, A Clockwork Orange, and The Last Picture Show are all in the registry. The fifth uh, nominee, Nicholas Alexandra, is not eligible, meaning Fiddler on the Roof is the only one out of those Best Picture nominees that's eligible that isn't in, and it's very surprising to me that it isn't in. It's it's a, a staple of many people's households. Uh, despite its length, it can be an annual viewing for many people. You even have John Williams doing his take on Jerry Bach's score, which is deeply moving, great cinematography from Oswald Morris. It's a really powerful film, um, a really triumphant movie, and uh, I do believe that Fiddler on the Roof uh, deserves a place in the National Film Registry. Can't go wrong there. Can't go wrong there. So it's funny because Mike says he had a hard time finding a one-to-one for this movie. Um, it took a little looking for me, too, but I came upon one that was kind of a, like oh, okay, this is kind of a no-brainer once I laid my eyes on it. It is the first film from a filmmaker that I've really come to appreciate uh, over the last few years. One whose filmography I've been working through and I'm almost done with, and one where um, you you look at the grand scope of his work, you go, I don't know how he's done all these different kinds of things, but also you see him in everything, so it does make sense in a way which kind of ties it to Ford as well. His uh, his first movie came out in 2000. It's a part of the Criterion Collection. It is centered on the youth point of view in a town that's clearly riddled with economic disparity because of a, a, a business, one of those factories that maybe isn't um, playing fair with money or work or what have you, or just that the day, that days have been better and that the the, the the factory's just not doing as well as it used to with uh, a little bit of that poetic kind of wistful look back but with an honesty to it as well. It shows another adept quality that uh, Ford had with but his adept work with Roddy McDowell. This guy is great with uh, children, working with children uh, throughout so many of his movies. And I think it's great. I think it's a pretty great movie. And I think as for what it is and for what it signified for the career to come, uh, I think uh, 2000's George Washington should be in the National Film Registry. I think it's great. And uh, it kicked off David Gordon Green's career, which in turn kicked off Danny McBride's career, which in turn led to so many great movies and TV and just, um, you know... uh, one of the most interesting careers I think we have right now. So um, I definitely think it should be in uh, for many, many reasons. I think it's a great movie. Let's all go to the lobby, lobby, lobby. Thank you again to Patrick Cotner for joining us. Next week, our Pawnee political pal returns to the show. Amanda Rush is back for 1960s primary. Don't forget to follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks again for listening. And we'll see you again next time.
on your missing out. They honor movies of historical, cultural, or aesthetic importance on the National Film Registry.